This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. You can do a lot of things with potatoes. Fry them, mash them, turn them into vodka. The possibilities are endless. The same can't really be said about the state that's famous for them. Idaho is essentially Utah light. You have the presumed safety of a Mormon community with the added bonus of being able to gamble. I've spent a little bit of time in Idaho as they share a lake with Utah up north. My family had a house right on Bear Lake when I was a kid. On the Utah side, of course. But we would go into Fish Haven for scratch-off tickets and beer. I've also gone up to Idaho for a metal festival and a wedding. It's basically just mountains and farmland with slot machines in their gas stations. As you probably guessed, they are a death penalty state. I was surprised to find out that they've only executed three people since 1976, though. Lethal injection is their primary method of execution, but as of July 1st, 2023, the firing squad is also an option. It makes me really happy to see more states bringing in the firing squad rather than experimenting on the condemned with different drugs. As of the time of writing, there are eight people on death row. None of them have a scheduled execution date. So let's cross some state lines and go buy lottery tickets. Alaskan Ted Kaczynski, Californian John Wayne Gacy, and now Idaho and Jack the Ripper. History often repeats itself, especially in the aspect of crime. There are only so many fucked up things humans can do to each other before they start copying the past. Alcohol seemed to be the fuel for the night Raymond Snowden took the life of Cora Dean in Garden City. It's often the reason for shitty decisions. I've battled the booze demon off and on since I was 15. It's gotten me into more than my share of predicaments. Hell, my daughter was conceived when I was shit-faced on 100-proof peppermint schnapps. That turned out to be a good decision, but at the time I was not intending on getting pregnant. I can't tell you how many mornings I've woken up in a daze with a pounding headache only to be told the tales of what I did the night before. Thankfully I've never killed anyone, just made a large handful of other destructive mistakes. On September 23, 1956, Snowden was out with Cora, drinking. Maybe on a date? That's unclear, but it is believed that she rejected his sexual advances and that's what led him to do what he did. Snowden claimed that he hit Cora and she kicked him in retaliation. This caused him to snap and stab her 29 times. The pathologist who examined her body determined that her throat had been slashed before the killer stabbed his blade into the base of her skull to look for her spinal cord. This, too, was slashed with his knife. The Garden City detective working on Cora's case had a chance encounter years before this incident with a man who had threatened to cut his girlfriend's spinal cord. The man was locked up for this threat. Going on nothing more than a hunch, the detective arrested Raymond Snowden for a second time. He was apprehended at Hannafin's cigar store in Boise, where he tried to dump the murder weapon in the gutter. It was believed that he went to the store to wash the blood off his hands. 
Witnesses then came forward to claim that they had seen Snowden talking to Cora in a bar. Snowden confessed to what he had done, telling police that Cora resisted his advances and he pulled a knife on her, telling her, Take your pick, honey. Rape or death. Cora screamed and tried to fight him off, and he slashed her throat. Snowden was taken to the old Idaho penitentiary to serve his time. While there, he bragged about killing at least two other women, but these claims were never proven to be true. As you probably guessed, Snowden was given a death sentence. People in the 1950s didn't fuck around when it came to violent crime. Raymond Allen Snowden was executed by hanging on October 18, 1957. His execution would be considered botched by today's standards. After the lever was pulled, the trapdoors opened. Snowden's neck didn't snap when he fell through. He instead hung and struggled to breathe for 15 minutes while his victim's family watched. Maybe I'm just an asshole, but he kind of got what was coming to him. He killed an innocent woman because she didn't want to fuck him. I hope her face was the last thing he saw as he choked to death. His final resting place is an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. He was asked if he had any last words, to which he responded, Yes, I do, but I don't know how to say it. I can't find anything on his last meal. Hannafin's Cigar Shop is still open to this day. You can go in there and stand where a deranged murderer was arrested, if that's your thing anyway. The old Idaho Penitentiary is now a museum that you can tour. Some visitors have even claimed to hear Snowden struggling to breathe when they entered the gallows room. Keith Eugene Wells was born on May 11, 1962 in Moab, Utah. He was the sixth of eight children. Seems like a pretty average 1960s Utah family to me. His family was Mormon, of course, and they moved up to Pocatello, Idaho, where he spent his childhood. He was a troubled child, as a lot of those raised in the LDS church turn out to be. No offense to you lovely Utah people I know are listening, but I do have a point. Wells started experimenting with cigarettes and alcohol at the age of four, and by 10 or 11 had moved on to smoking weed. He was frequently in trouble at school for truancy and fighting, and also liked to use the five-finger discount to get things from his friends and family. By ninth grade, Wells had a drug problem. It cost him about 200 a month for his weed and amphetamines. Honestly, doesn't seem like that much to me, but I don't really want to get into that can of worms right now. Either drugs were really cheap back then, or this guy is a fucking amateur. Wells himself admitted to being involved in 30 thefts and assaults that got him in trouble between 1975 and 1978. At 15, he caught a vandalism charge and did his first stint in jail. By 17, he'd be locked up again, but was later released. In December of 1989, Keith Wells was a convicted robber who couldn't stay out on parole for long without doing something to get sent back to prison. They gave him one last chance. After a year, he managed to earn minimum supervision and only had to meet with his parole officer once every six months. God damn. My experience with APNP is that they harass the ever-loving fuck out of you, bang on your door once a week, and make you piss clean whenever you go check in. Once every six months seems like a dream. And no, I don't have a record, I just happen to know a few people who have had run-ins with the law that ended up with probation. 
A customer entered the Rose Pub in Boise on December 20th, 1990, but was not met by anyone serving drinks. It was eerily quiet. After looking around, they located the bodies of 23-year-old John Justed and 20-year-old Brandy Rains. John was a customer who also worked for a local beer distributor, and Brandy was the bartender. I'm not sure why someone under 21 is bartending, but this is the 90s. Both victims had been beaten with a blunt object. It was initially believed that robbery was the motive, as money was missing from the cash register. The attacker had left through a back door and his footprints remained in the snow. Police tried to track them, but ran out of luck at a nearby intersection. Surprisingly, both victims had survived their attack. They were taken to a local hospital, where they both succumbed to their injuries a while later. Wells was arrested on April 23, 1991, and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. He was ordered to be held without bail. His preliminary hearing began on June 5th. They really didn't like to wait around back then, did they? God damn. In my experience, the court system likes to drag the shit out as long as they possibly can. Wells changed his story many times, as cowardly bastards who murder often do. His initial claim was that John and Brandy owed him $3,000 for cocaine. Fucking hell, that is a lot of blow. Later on, Wells admitted that he'd lied and changed his story several times. He tried to say that he had taken money from John and returned it to his drug suppliers, but that they sent him back to the bar for more money. These supposed suppliers came back with him and allegedly attacked John with a baseball bat before handing it to Wells. During the week of June 10th, 1991, Wells pled not guilty to both murders. His trial began on October 15th. Just nine days later, he was found guilty on both counts. The judge in his case took about six months to decide that a death sentence was deserved. Wells didn't want any appeals. He told the court to just allow his execution to go through because he didn't want to drag out the suffering of his family or the families of his victims. No one wants to spend their life in a cell and Wells had made attempts to take his own life after he was convicted. While on death row, he confessed to what he had done in a telephone interview. He decided it was time to clear his conscience and get the truth out. At the time of the murders, Wells had been on parole following an armed robbery conviction. He was angry. When he went out on December 19, 1990, he had it in his head that someone would die at his hands that night. His victims had been selected at random. They had done nothing wrong to him. When he got to the Rose Pub, he left his baseball bat in the back of the bar. Two hours into his drinking and shenanigans, he retrieved it and beat John and Brandy with it. The bat was later burned in a fireplace. Wells finally gave his reason for killing John and Brandy. It was time for them to die. No, it wasn't, Keith, you demented fuck. The hell is wrong with you? Keith Eugene Wells was executed by lethal injection on January 6, 1994. An hour and a half before he was scheduled to die, he apologized to the families of his victims for the first time. His execution began at 12.40 a.m. and took only 10 minutes to conclude. His execution was the first one carried out since the 1957 execution of Raymond Snowden, and it was the first one in the state of Idaho to be done by lethal injection. Wells offered no final words. His last meal was a whole lobster, well-done prime rib, 
fried potatoes, salad with tomatoes and onions and Italian dressing, two pints of ice cream, a half gallon of milk, a two-liter bottle of soda, and two apple fritters. You know, I'm kind of starting to wonder if I'm related to this guy somehow. Wells is an old family name in my lineage, and that side of my family is from Idaho. Weird. Just a quick side note, I've also wondered if I'm related to the Alaskan serial killer Robert Hansen for the same reason. His parents came over to the US from Denmark around the same time as my great-great-grandfather, whose last name was also Hansen. Maybe I'm reading too much into it? You never know though, I do have a few distant relatives up in Alaska. As I mentioned earlier, Idaho has only executed three people since 1976. I've heard of some absolutely heinous shit happening up there, such as the case of Shasta Groney. Sword and scale covered it beautifully. Plus 79 is the episode. Holy fucking shit, that case was atrocious. For whatever reason though, Mormons don't like giving people the death penalty. It's the same here in Utah, but that's another episode for another day. Born on January 18, 1957 in Idaho Falls, Paul Rhodes didn't have an easy life. He ended up getting polio at the age of four and had to be in the hospital consistently. His home life wasn't much better. His parents were always arguing. At the ripe old age of 10, Rhodes began drinking. Later on, he dropped out of high school and began using drugs, like most troubled kids do. Meth sunk its claws into him, and he battled with that addiction until he was arrested. In order to provide for his family, he took odd jobs in Idaho and other surrounding states. His main job skill was sheetrocking, but he also got good at breaking into houses and stealing shit. On the morning of March 1, 1987, a 21-year-old convenience store clerk named Stacy Don Baldwin was found shot to death in an archery range. Her murder was linked to a robbery gone wrong that had occurred the previous night. A couple weeks later, 20-year-old Nolan Haddon was found shot, but still alive in the walk-in cooler of the convenience store he worked in. He was taken to the Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center, but quickly lost his battle. One final victim would be tied to this same killer. In a lava field west of Idaho Falls, the body of 34-year-old Susan Mickelbacher was found after she'd been abducted from a supermarket parking lot. After she was abducted, she was forced to cash two checks for $1,000 before being shot nine times and raped, possibly in that order. Susan was a special ed teacher. I have to assume she was a very kind, patient soul who didn't at all deserve what happened to her. None of these victims did. This shit was senseless. But a tweaker in need is a criminal indeed. There's no getting around that. An arrest warrant for grand larceny was issued for Paul Rhodes on March 27, 1987. They caught up to him pretty quickly in a casino in Wells, Nevada. After he was detained, his belongings were given to the authorities in Idaho. Bullets were discovered in his bag that matched the ones in Stacy, Nolan, and Susan's cases. Because of this, Rhodes was charged with Susan's murder in addition to kidnapping, rape, robbery, several firearm charges, and desecration of a corpse. They later charged him with two more counts of murder for Stacy and Nolan, but these would be separate trials. 
Rhodes tried the insanity defense in his first trial, but the Idaho Supreme Court rejected it. One of the prospective jurors in his case was Governor Cecil Andrus, who had signed the extradition documents to get Rhodes out of Nevada. He was obviously dismissed due to his familiarity with the case. One Nevada detective claimed that he and several other officers had heard Rhodes admit to his involvement in Susan's murder, but didn't file a statement about it due to an oversight. That's some West Jordan police work if I've ever seen any. God damn, I can't wait to tell you guys why I have such a problem with them. Give it some time. The story is worth the wait. Anyway, back to Rhodes and his trial. His defense attorney cross-examined that detective, who admitted that he never actually heard Rhodes confess anything. I thought we were in Idaho, not my neck of the woods. On January 27, 1988, just nine days after the trial began, Rhodes was found guilty on all counts. His sentencing phase was set for March 16th. While waiting to be sentenced for Susan's murder, Rhodes had to stand trial for the other two. On March 3rd, 1988, Rhodes went to trial for Stacy's murder. He pled not guilty and attempted to claim that he had been babysitting for a family member the night of the murder and therefore could not be responsible. All of the state's evidence was largely circumstantial, but they argued that it all pointed straight to Rhodes. The smoking guns were the bullets in his handgun, as well as an abnormally large shoe print. On March 12th, he was found guilty on all counts. He would later be sentenced to death, as well as life plus 45 years for the other charges in Stacy's case. A plea deal was reached in Nolan's case. Rhodes entered an Alford plea, which is basically denying guilt while accepting that a conviction is possible based on the evidence at hand. It's a coward's way out, to be blunt. He was given concurrent, indeterminate life sentences on the murder charge, as well as the robbery charge in this case. Rhodes appealed, of course. He claimed that of the three DNA samples found on Susan's body, only two of them belonged to him. That's still two fucking DNA samples that belong to you. What, what are you trying to do? The High Court pointed out that these claims were made far too late to meet the appeal deadlines and that his own expert witness agreed that this third DNA sample could have possibly belonged to Susan. Idaho does not have an insanity defense. It was abolished in 1982 and the state legislature said that mental condition shall not be a defense to any charge of criminal conduct. The defense attorneys in this case requested that this rule be declared unconstitutional. Now, I'm not an expert on the Constitution, but I'm almost positive there's nothing in there about having the right to kill people and get away with it because you're crazy. Maybe, though. It was claimed that this rule deprives criminal defendants of the right to due process. I have no idea why any of this was brought up in the first place, as Rhodes had not even tried to use an insanity defense. Maybe he was just looking to pick at loose threads and see what would unravel. This Idaho case has some ties to Utah. Three murders took place in this salty wasteland that police believe Rhodes was responsible for. In May of 1985, 18-year-old Christine Gallegos was shot dead in Salt Lake. Nearly a year later, 20-year-old Carla Maxwell was shot and killed during the robbery of a convenience store in Layton. Don't you love how I say that? Layton. And people say Utahns don't have an accent. If there's a T in the middle of the word, the Utah accent prevents me from saying it. Layton. 
that sounds wrong. It's Layton. Just wait until I get to tell you about the mountains in the Utah episode. Now you'll never hear it correctly again. Lisa Strong was the last of the Utah victims. She was gunned down on the streets of Salt Lake at just 25 years old. Paul Ezra Rhodes was executed by lethal injection on November 18, 2011. Defense attorneys filed an emergency appeal just three days prior, claiming that Idaho's new protocol for lethal injection was very likely to be botched and caused their client to suffer in his final moments. They pulled the Eighth Amendment out of their ass for this one, the one about cruel and unusual punishment. Pretty sure Susan Mickelbacher had to suffer in her final moments, but I guess that doesn't matter. The execution went smoothly and only took 20 minutes from start to finish. His last words were, To Bert Mickelbacher, I am sorry for the part I played in your wife's death. For Haddon and Baldwin, I can't help you. You still have to keep looking. I'm sorry for your family. I can't help you. I took part in the Mickelbacher murder. I can't help you guys. I'm sorry. Rhodes then said goodbye to his mother. After that, he turned to the executioner, or the warden, and uttered, I forgive you. I really do. For his last meal, Rhodes was given hot dogs, sauerkraut, mustard, ketchup, onions, relish, baked beans, veggie sticks, ranch dressing, fruit with gelatin, and strawberry ice cream cups, which was the same thing every other prisoner got that day. Sounds more like a cookout than a last meal, but whatever. The most recent execution in Idaho took place on June 12, 2012. This is another one of those cases that has me wondering what the fuck took so long. If you're eating, I suggest maybe saving it for later or just saying fuck it and not finishing your lunch today. This one is fucking rough. If you've listened to any of my other episodes, you'll know that I'm about as paranoid as they come. I've grown a pair of eyes in the back of my head, and I sleep with both of them open. Thankfully, I have a wonderful man in my life who I view as my protector. He's always there to keep an eye on me when we go out into the world. And he taught me how to shoot, so in the unlikely event that someone tries to fuck around, they'll find out. The thought of being a single woman in today's time scares the literal shit out of me. We live in a crazy era. But if true crime has taught me anything, it's that the 80s was not a good decade to be alive. Danette Jean Elg was born in Idaho on December 6, 1952. I can't find a lot on her life, as her family has kept quiet in the media. After all that happened, I really can't say I blame them. What I was able to learn was that Danette was an outdoorsy woman. She loved fishing, hang gliding, and nature. Something I was surprised to read was that she was a licensed private pilot. I live very close to an airport and constantly see small planes take off and land. Those things scare the fuck out of me. Danette must have had nerves of steel. At the time of her death, she was the only woman to graduate from the Idaho State Aeronautical School. That's fucking impressive. She seems like the cool aunt type to me. It's a shame her life had to be cut so short. Danette was a single woman living alone in Bingham County, Idaho. On a probably hot July night in 1984, she noticed a man creeping around her yard trying to break into her house. 
Being smart and independent, she made the decision to call 911 and report what was going on. Though she couldn't say for sure, she had her suspicions that the man was an acquaintance, Richard Levitt. When the police came, no intruder was found. They searched for him for a while, but were unable to locate him. Less than a week later, Danette's body would be found in her bedroom. Richard Levitt was a mechanic who had become quite infamous in the town of Blackfoot for his odd behavior. He was suspected of rape in a handful of cases, but because he had threatened the victims, they wouldn't outright name him. He was a violent man. It came out in trial that Levitt had previously strangled small animals to death for no reason. He was also charged with killing two cows with a bow and arrow. It looks to me like Levitt was a serial killer in the making. He was an avid hunter and would sometimes bring his wife along with him on hunting trips. On one such occasion, she recalled him shooting a doe and bringing it back to the car where she was waiting. Apparently, he didn't even notice her presence. After arriving back at the car, he proceeded to repeatedly stab the deer in the genitals, pushing, pulling, and twisting the knife inside in order to see how the reproductive organs worked. I am fucking speechless. That right there would be reason enough to put a bullet in that sick bastard. I am just glad the deer was already dead. What he would go on to do has me wishing his wife would have shot him when she had the chance. No jury would find her guilty of putting down a man who could mutilate an animal in such a way. On July 18, 1984, Danette was at home sleeping comfortably in her waterbed probably still a little shaken up from dealing with a guy creeping around her house. Unfortunately for her, the man wouldn't give up so easily. He came back after she was asleep and broke in. Police would come upon Danette's body several days after she was killed. She was naked, caked in blood, laying on her deflated waterbed. Because of the heat, her body had started to decompose, and the police who were first on the scene described the smell as nauseating and said that the level of brutality the poor young woman went through left them with nightmares. Danette had been stabbed 15 times. This is why her waterbed was leaking. Most of the wounds were in her chest, hitting her lungs and heart. She was also hit in the stomach and neck. The worst one for me, though, was the one that went through her eye and into her brain. I can't imagine the terror this poor woman experienced in her final moments. All I can do is hope that she had already passed on before her killer finished carrying out his fantasy. It wasn't enough to brutally stab Danette to death. He went on to cut out her genitals and her rectum as well. Yeah. In addition to being a sick motherfucker, Levitt was also incredibly stupid. He was the one to report Danette missing. He told them that he was concerned for her safety. They believed that he wanted his crime to be discovered so that he could soak up the sensationalism of his brutality. It was pretty obvious that Levitt was the perpetrator, but the police took their time building their case and left him alone for five months. Residents of Blackfoot were terrified. Anytime they heard a noise, they'd assume the worst and call the police. I can't say I blame them. This is Idaho, though. I'm assuming most people have at least one gun laying around somewhere. The evidence against Levitt was pretty circumstantial. His blood type was found on Danette's shorts. This blood had come from a cut he'd sustained during the attack. Danette had fought back hard. She put up a hell of a fight, 
and ended up causing Levitt to injure himself and leave a trail behind. After the murder, he'd gone to the emergency room to get stitches. He claimed he cut his hand on a fan, but this was later proven to be a lie. A fan couldn't make that kind of cut. At trial, Levitt claimed he'd gotten a nosebleed in Danette's bedroom the week before the murder. His blood was found all over the place, including on her underwear. He would later claim that the cut was sustained while he tried to prevent his wife from attempting suicide. Fuck it, throw every kind of excuse at it and see what sticks, I guess. Levitt also attempted to send his wife a letter telling her to memorize a story he had made up that would give him an alibi. Levitt was found guilty of Danette's murder and sentenced to death on December 19, 1985. But as you can probably guess, he appealed. Several times. Apparently, he didn't get a fair trial due to the publicity of the case. You know, the publicity that he reveled in. He also claimed that a police dispatcher took calls from a man named Mike Jenkins who had allegedly confessed to the murder and that this evidence was not presented at trial. It was believed that Mike Jenkins was actually just Levitt disguising his voice. He even tried to say that the letter he'd written to his wife shouldn't have been used as evidence due to marital privilege. Pretty sure that's only a thing if the spouse doesn't want to testify on the stand. In a plea for a clemency hearing, Levitt wrote, I did not murder Danette Elg. I am deeply sorry that she is dead, that she died a violent death, and that her family and friends have also had to suffer her loss. But I did not stab her or mutilate her body, and that I was not present when someone else did. Maybe it's just me, but... I think if someone is capable of cutting out and stabbing the genitals of a deer, they're pretty likely to do the same thing to a human. What the fuck do I know, though? Levitt's mother believed that her son was innocent. She claimed that the polygraph test, which was not admissible in court, was all the evidence needed to show that he wasn't guilty. Losing a child is the worst thing in the world. We've lived with it for 27 years, expecting it at any time. I sympathize with the family so much. Losing a child is hell, but Danette's family had to lose an innocent person. You, Mrs. Levitt, are losing a monster. In addition to his mother, Levitt's son also maintained his innocence. I'm my dad's kid. I know I'm not capable of murdering someone. There's no way I could take someone's life, so I don't think there's any way he could either. Tim Levitt was four at the time of the murder. Later in life, he'd spend some time incarcerated at the same prison as his father. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, apparently. Richard Albert Levitt was executed by lethal injection on June 12, 2012, after sitting on death row for almost 27 years. Danette Elg was only 31 when she was killed. Levitt spent almost the same amount of time on death row as Danette lived on this earth. His execution was carried out without any issues, peacefully, painlessly, entirely opposite the way Danette's was. There is no justice in that. Levitt had no last words. His last meal was baked chicken, fries, and milk. Of the eight people currently on death row in Idaho, one stands out to me. Maybe it's the psychotic look in his eyes. Maybe it's the fact that he got two separate death sentences years apart. But the tale I'm about to tell you is a very sad one. 
two men in similar situations, sharing a residence for a brief time, who end up on completely different ends of the spectrum. And two women, both taken from this earth way before their time. Lynn Henneman was a recently married flight attendant who hadn't yet gotten the time to go on her honeymoon. She'd dated her husband for six years before finally tying the knot. They were set to go to Bali to celebrate their love, but Lynn had agreed to cover one final shift before their trip. On September 24, 2000, she left for work, not expecting that day to be her last. After arriving in Boise, the flight crew stayed at the Doubletree Riverside. Lynn and another flight attendant named Diane declined to join them for dinner. Instead, Lynn asked Diane if she'd go for a walk with her. Unfortunately, the trip had made Diane tired and she opted to take a nap instead. This didn't stop Lynn from enjoying her time in Boise. Her husband was a painter and she enjoyed art very much because of that. Her destination for the day was the Boise Art Museum. After they closed, she headed across the street to the Table Rock Pub and Grill. When she was finished eating, she headed down onto the Boise Greenbelt. For anyone wondering, it's a park with a 25-mile long path. Along the way, Lynn bumped into a man named Christian Johnson who promptly hit on her. Lynn showed him her wedding ring and he apologized for coming on to a married woman. I'm sure you can guess where this is going. Lynn did her best to make him feel better and Christian went on his way. Lynn ended up getting turned around somewhere and began asking people she ran into for directions. Two women stopped to chat with her, followed by a man in a truck and another man on a bike. The dude on the bike told Lynn which way would be the quickest. Everyone went their separate ways at this point. A short while later, Eric Hall, the guy on the bike, would follow Lynn. Lynn didn't make it back to her hotel room that night. Her body would later be found off the pathway. She'd been raped and strangled to death with her own shirt. Forensic evidence showed that she'd been alive for the entire attack. She suffered a broken arm, a brutal rape, and being forced face down in the mud. It took three minutes for Hall to strangle Lynn to death. Three years later, Hall would strike again. Cheryl Ann Hanlon was out exploring the foothills on the north side of Boise. Little did she know she'd be met by a transient with ill intentions. Her body was found on March 1st, 2003, out in the wilderness by a 16-year-old kid who was walking his dog. She'd been raped and strangled to death with her own belt. Gee, I wonder who could have done something like that. Hall's DNA would be linked to both murders. But who the hell was Eric Hall? I found this article that explains why he might be so fucked in the head. Hall was a transient, bouncing from place to place, crashing on couches, and sleeping rough. At one point, he was offered a place to stay with a man named Grant Bernhardt, who took pleasure in taking care of the vulnerable. His apartment was somewhat of a halfway house. There was always a person in need keeping him company. The author of this article also stayed with Grant for a time. The difference here is that Hall raped and murdered several women, while Harrison Barry got his shit together and built a life for himself. Harrison later wrote to Hall to try to get the killer's perspective on things. I will link the article in the show notes. It's an interesting read for sure. Because of the DNA evidence, as well as witness testimony, Hall was given death sentences in both cases. Eric Virgil Hall still sits on death row in Idaho. 
He was known to be violent toward women and had several ex-girlfriends come forward to say that he'd choked them during arguments. In addition to the murders, Hall had also raped a 17-year-old girl back in 1991. His claims of liking rough sex haven't convinced me. Many of us enjoy the more extreme things in life, and we aren't out raping and strangling people in the wilderness. We can blame Hall's upbringing for his poor decisions, but as the author of this article proves, we are all in control of our own destinies. Shitty circumstances can be changed with hard work. I'm also proof of this. I was raised poor. I dragged myself out of poverty and addiction with the help of my now husband. All it takes is a little willpower and self-control. Well, that's it for the potatoes and meth state. I hope you liked it. I'm still blown away by how similar Idaho and Utah are in the aspect of the death penalty. Maybe soon some of these eight will meet their end by the firing squad instead of being medical experiments. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet. I'm available on Rumble as well as most places you can get podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram at LastMealPod. The next two episodes are going to be big ones, so be prepared for that. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.